Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is David Smalley with Dogma Debate Radio, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. I woke up this morning, had a burning deep inside. I couldn't hear feeling, it's all a big lie. I feel the pain. Well, welcome back to another episode of Left of the Valley with Kevin, Karen, and Nancy. How you doing, guys? Yeah, doing good. Good. In case you guys don't know, this is a show about positive atheism, skeptical thinking, and secular humanism. We broadcast from the Fraser Valley, and we hope to inform you guys and hopefully also entertain a bit. <laughs> and happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Absolutely. Um, Kevin, not no. you, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, to all the fathers out there. I identify as a father. I think that's the, the latest. <laughs> that's, is, that know, a keeping, Bruce, keeping is that a Caitlyn yeah, Jenner joke? That's, yeah. that's a good point, actually. You know, there's lots of single parents now who act as both mother and father. So, happy day to all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And make sure for traditional, uh, if you have a father there or there, the traditional gifts are a uh, socks or a tie. <laughs> Those are the traditional. <laughs> um, well, we got a great show today. We're going to be talking about Site C Dam with our friend Damien Gillis. Um, but uh, before we get into all this, I just want to take a quick uh, peek into uh, some of the local, well, they're not local, but some of the events that have happened. Do you guys have any thoughts on uh, uh, what happened in Charleston? About this, uh, this fellow uh, who's obviously a racist fellow. Just went into the church, shot nine uh, members of the church, of the black community, and uh, I was... What I is know. there to say? I mean, they go drag black boys into the street and shoot them for doing nothing, for standing there and, you know, not immediately falling to the ground and crying in front of the police officers. They do nothing and they get shot and killed. And this kid goes into the church and... and uh, <laughs> Shoots people. Yeah, they didn't kill him. I mean, and they did, and yeah, he just walks out and it's fine. You know, I, I mean, it's very clear that they have a huge race problem and they need to deal with it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Really it's it's a perfect storm of horrible circumstances. The the I, I forget this young man's first name. His last name is Roth, but hmm. his middle name is Storm. And some people are thinking there may be some neo-Nazi connections or white supremacists yeah, apparently with yes. his with his parents. And then he, they give him money, and he buys a gun on his birthday. And he lives in a state where they still are flying the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. And he researched that um, and wanted to go to this church so that he would start a civil war. So it, everything bad that could possibly happen in one incident, and you keep thinking, well, maybe this incident will finally wake people up. And I saw the rant that John Stewart did, mm, yes. and he was just speechless, saying everybody says that at, at moments like this, and nothing happens. Exactly. And well, you, you can al- you can already see some of the spin. Uh, there's, of course, concerning us being an atheist show, some of the spins right away were, no, this is not a racist attack; it's an attack on religion. Uh, which is ridiculous, just because the guy did that in a church, right? I mean, apparently one of the reports says that he, he uh, when he stood up and started basically shouting, uh, you rape our women, and started shooting people. 
uh, including women. <laughs> you know, so this doesn't well, make any sense. Of course, the, uh, and then of course uh, the, there were some uh, um, uh, politicians that were using this. Up. I believe like Rick Perry down in Texas was uh, starting saying, uh, "Yeah, this is the." Uh, Things that Obama would like to to use to pull the guns away from from the populace and all that. How can okay? How many shootings? How many children, students in the schools? I'm sorry, I'm yelling. Voice level, yeah. How many people have to die before they realize there's a problem with their gun culture? This does not happen in Canada. This does not happen anywhere in Europe. It does not happen anywhere in the world except for the United States. And there is a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of the, part of the reason, or I was going to say most of the reason, and I'm not going to retract that. I'll go back. Most of the reason is that the politicians, mostly the ones on, on the right, are bought and paid for by the NRA mm-hmm. and bought and paid for by organizations that, like the Koch brothers, that want people to, to have their guns. And I think... Most of the popular, most of the people, most of the population would be in favor of gun control oh, on every actually, poll. Yeah, but the, poll. Le- but yeah. the ones who are making money from the gun manufacturers and the NRA mm-hmm. refuse to change their culture until they get voted out. I don't know, and I don't think there's enough pressure on them from their constituents to get them to change. Uh, It'll be really interesting to see what happens this time. Yeah. But Actually, the yeah. uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but last I checked, it was over 90% of the population agreed that they needed some kind of reform and regulation, uh, yet uh, most of Congress voted against it. And it's not just the uh, uh, on the right-wing side. Of course, they don't shy away from it, but the Democrats are also in the same way. You know, and it's a crazy gun culture, and uh, and it's it's it, it's amazing to see the NRA having such power, yet there's such a tiny number. But you know, there's a bit of a lesson in there as these NRA members go out there and vote. A tiny number, do. but big dollar value. Yes, yes. It, it has nothing to do with the num- the number of people at the voting polls. But the, it's, a, it's a it's a voting change. block for the politician, yeah. right? It's a guaranteed voting block if they have him on that that side. Absolutely. So th- that also speaks to people that choose not to participate in the electoral process as well. Well, like, well I think, like, like you said, Nancy, it's going to have to take citizens standing up and, and really clamoring for change. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to say, no, we, the majority of the people, do not want this. Therefore, I don't care who paid for you, Mr. Democrat or Republican, you need to not support yeah. these I mean, I really measures. thought that, um, was it three years ago when those children were massacred? At, is it Sandy Hook? Yes. yes. Sandy, Sandy Hook. Hook. I really and truly thought this has to be it. This, it, it, you know, nobody in their right mind can not go for legislation for gun control or registration or making sure that gun regulation mm-hmm. in some way. And nothing, nothing happened. They all turned it down. That horrified me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It uh, really did. I was having this argument with an American because I told him, I said, uh, like I said, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if, if I remember correctly, in Canada, which is also a very gun-loving country, we have a lot of hunting and you know not like like the Americans but you know there's a lot of guns per capita in Canada there really is uh, the uh, average number of death gun related death in Canada is maybe about 200 a year uh, in the United States it's 11,000 and of course this American fellow a uh, friend of mine was basically saying well yeah but you know we get we have way more population than Canada it's true um, population of Canada is like 30 35 million the Americans, 350 million. So tenfold, right? Tenfold. So even if you take 200 and 
added a decimal, it's still 2,000 compared to 11,000. So if that doesn't put the, uh, the, the put it in front of your eyes there, nothing will. There is a problem. No, and like you said, nowhere else in the world do they have the, these numbers. And by far, I mean, Japan is something like 46. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a ridiculous, yeah. uh, ridiculous amount. Yeah, I heard the last statistic that I heard was that the United States had 25% or 25 times more um, uh, shootings than any place else in the yeah. civilized world. Twenty, twenty-five. Yeah, and I, I do business in the states on a regular basis, and it, it, yeah. it's always in the back of my mind. Twenty-five times, not percent, but twenty-five times mm-hmm. more shootings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's always that. in the back of my mind that you know I'm dealing with somebody, and I have no idea if they have a gun on them or not. It never crosses my mind up here in Canada. You know, oh. like you know, having oh, a yeah. heated argument with somebody, it never crosses my mind. But in the states, it does. So you know, this guy could pull a gun on me, and it's completely legal for them to do so. Um, and I, there's one more little thing I want to bring on this. Um, like you said, his middle name being Storm, it is a perfect storm because this is a this is a kid who's been raised on a, a media culture of fear mongering, of you know the black man's coming to get you, he's coming to get your gun, and this is a result. He could be the first of a generation of people that that have been weaned on that, if you wish, on the, this 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 sensational reporting that you find in places like Fox News. I hope not, but I, I get a really, really bad feeling about that. Well, yeah. okay. Well, I, I think that being raised on Fox News, if you you know didn't look at other news sources, that you're certainly going to grow up with a very warped view of the world, but that is not an excuse for someone to be a mass murderer. I, 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 that's a big jump from, from being... Well, we're going to find out what his where his influences were, whether they were from his parents, whether it was from media, whether the, what websites, you know, mm-hmm. he, he went to. I understand that he had a collection of yeah. things from, mm-hmm. you know, various white supremacists. I may be wrong, but mm-hmm. something is, uh, anyway, it shows that he's been thinking about this mm-hmm. and researched this for for quite a long yeah. time. It certainly doesn't help, and I sure hope people start realizing that, you know, what you say out there will have an impact, even something as small as this, as this podcast. You have to try to stay uh, close to the truth as possible. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but you have to remember that you can have an impact on people listening to you. Exactly. And one of the things um, on Fox News, um, or report on Fox News, uh, someone was on, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't tell you exactly who it was, but he was actually blaming uh, Clemente Pickney, the, the pastor, um, the senator who was who was killed, and saying it was his fault because he opposed uh, carrying a gun, and if he had promoted carrying a gun, and the people in church had had guns with them, that there never would have been this kind of massacre. They could have killed him before he no. got off more than one or shot. there could now, have been even more people dead. And, so, and this goes to what you were saying, it, it, the truth. And people who are white supremacists and who believe this, that's their truth. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, and when you hear something like this right after a massacre, that it's the victim's fault and people believe that, then you begin to wonder, where in the hell are we going? Yeah, country senior Toby Keith said the same thing, and it really shows that these people have never actually been in in a fight. Not not necessarily a gunfight, but even a fight, because anybody who's got a bit of combat experience will realize, you know what, the situation is so rapid, 
Even if there would have been two people with guns in that church, there is no way in hell you have time to pull out your gun and shoot that guy. It is unrealistic to think that you can just cowboy your way into safety and security. You just can't do that. You know, it's much better to make sure that the population is respectful of other people around you instead of saying this macho uh, John, what was his name, John Wayne uh, way of thinking, you know, that, you know, you just got to walk around with your big colt or whatever, you know, you, uh, anyway, God, let's move on to something better, let's move on to what we do best. What's that? <laughs> this ain't history. <laughs> okay, Joby. Everybody take a deep breath. Let's go back and find something pleasant in history, shall we? I am all for that. Okay. And as we know, this day in history is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between June 8th and June 21st. So starting with June 8th, it was World Oceans Day. And apropos sort of of the water, in 1824... A washing machine was patented by a gentleman whose name was Noah Cushing from Quebec. And that was the first patent issued in Canada for a washing machine. Awesome. Awesome. I thank him deeply. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> it saves us from going down to the river with a, with a washing board for sure. Um, this is so cute. This is a great story. In 1920... It was the only time that a major league baseball player was ejected from a game for sleeping. Oh. <laughs> this is wonderful. Yeah, believe it or not. It had to be a player because I'm sure a lot of people in the audience sleep during a baseball no, game. No, no, no. Actually, this was a this was a yeah, an outfielder from the Cincinnati Reds. The real name was the Red Stockings, but everybody called them the Reds. And they're playing the New York Giants. So it's the eighth inning, and an argument starts at home plate about a foul ball and all that kind of stuff, the regular baseball kind of stuff. And the outfielder, whose name is Ed Rausch, um, he ended up going to the Hall of Fame, believe it or not. But anyway, he got so tired of hearing the same old argument. It's going on. It's a hot day. He puts his glove and his cap on the ground and takes a nap. (laughs) So... (laughs) So the the argument stops and everybody's looking and he's sound asleep. So the coach sends the third baseman out to get him. And he can't wake him up and he shakes him and he shakes. So finally he gets him up and he's sleepy and he's, you know, where the heck am I? And the ump is so upset by because he's already had this argument. And now he's got to put up <laughs> with Ed sleeping. And Ed was a very feisty character. So they first thought, well, maybe he's faking it. So they eject him out of the game and as a result the, um, not as a result but I guess uh, unfortunately the Cincinnati Reds lose the game 5-4 to four. <laughs> How come all the best stories without your segment are all baseball related? What's up with that? I don't know, but they are they're just, there's a lot of funny stories and baseball been good to me isn't that the guy <laughs> just to say on Saturday Night Live anyway believe it or not he uh, was voted the greatest player in red history in the Cincinnati Reds history and went into the Hall of Fame in 1962 the guy who fell asleep in the field was <laughs> the best player <laughs> fell asleep absolutely like he was him. such he was a strong hitter and a good outfield so I guess he was forgiven by that standard I'm the best fan yeah there you go <laughs> Moving on to June 9th, 
June 9th um, is World Naked Bike Ride Day. <laughs> Are you guys aware of World Naked Bike Ride Day? It's, um, it's no. legitimate. Well. <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> okay. I know, it's so hard for me. It's these things that I wish I had made. If I, could, I couldn't make these things up. It's good. Anyway, 1904, um, it's an international clothing optional bike ride in which participants plan, meet, and ride together and this is a quote, deliver a vision of a cleaner, safer body in a positive world. Good goal. I, I, I think there's logistical difficulties about riding a bike naked, isn't there? I mean, <laughs> I would think there so. They have a lot of clean wipes to wipe the seat. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's like clothing optional. So by, 200, by 2010, they had expanded to stage rides in 74 cities in 17 countries and they actually have one in Bellingham. It it, it came off, and uh, at first, city fathers were a little bit nervous about it, but now it's it's a really nice event. Really? And in Vancouver, they do the same thing on the the 13th of June. Oh, I, I could totally see Vancouver doing it. But. Yeah, Vancouver does. I lived there for years. I never heard of that or That's saw it. Because you didn't have a bike. Yeah, it starts at Sunset Beach. Okay. Is that a, is there is there a reason why it starts there? Is that a logical? Is that where the nude beach is? Uh, well, so the sort of uh, the rec beach is the nude beach, but okay. it's kind of oh, further right. just further down the bay. Okay. I, think, so. uh, I thought about other things on this date, but once you talk about the naked bike, <laughs> there's nothing else. There's nothing. Else. I don't care what else happened. We don't care. It's the naked bike ride. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna be remembered. I'm gonna look that up now. There you go. Okay, June twelfth. <laughs> It was Independence Day in the Philippines. And this is for all the science uh, um, people out there, people who love science. In 1965, the science, the scientists discovered a new, celest- new celestial bodies known as blue galaxies. Do you know about blue galaxies? No, I'm afraid I don't. I have don't. no idea either. But the blue galaxies, the discovery supports the Big Bang uh, scientific theory about the origin of the universe, and of course, according to Big Bang, that the universe began sometime between 12 billion and 20 billion years ago, and it was a cosmic explosion that hurled matter in all directions, and that explains why distant galaxies are traveling away from the Earth in great speed. So the blue ga- the blue galaxies sort of, um, if they haven't already, uh, sort of verified the Big Bang Theory. So it was a big deal. I'm sure Neil deGrasse Tyson could, oh, I'm sure. could I'm sure. tell us everything I'll we ever wanted. I wonder if they call them blue galaxies because they, are they hotter or are they like cooler? I have We don't know. No. We'll have to look it up. I should look it up and, and come back and, and find out. Mm-hmm. Um, on June 12th in 1979, the Gosma Albatross flew across the English Channel in an airplane powered solely by human power. What a job. Um, there was a cyclist whose name was Brian Allen. Was he naked? He he wore clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and you used a pedaling mechanism to do it. So wow, he must have been in great shape. He must have had, you know, all kinds of training on rowing machines for his knees and so forth. But he made it, landed safely. It depends, it depends on the gear as well, right? I mean, if he's yeah. got like a like a like a 21 speed we have today, he could be pedaling slowly, but yeah, but he still has to be in great shape. Oh yeah, yeah, totally yeah and that was 1979, so I'm oh, sure yeah. there's a pretty sophisticated gear system for him to use. If he had done it in 1909, it would have been a totally <laughs> oh, yeah. totally different story. Uh, June 14th, it was Flag Day in the U.S. 
um, in, uh, in June 14th in 1954, President uh, Eisenhower in the States signed the order adding the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. A lot of people think that that was there from the beginning, yeah. but it wasn't. It really was in reaction to communism and, and the things like care. that. So, so it's a fairly new addition. Even and on the money, the, on the dollar bill, I think it was 1957. Yeah. So it's actually not that old. When they see when they see tradition, it's actually hogwash. No, it was McCarthyism yeah, and totally communism right. and so forth. And when I was teaching in the states around that time, um, even teachers had to sign loyalty oaths. It, like if you signed it, oh yeah, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be a spy now that I've signed this. So I've, <laughs> I've always found that fascinating to see that even today, kids, you know, they, they stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance in, in the states. That that to me is just amazing. It just never even I never experienced anything like that. Yeah, no, me either. Yeah, I mean it's ingrained. You know, you feel funny if they if you don't do it. You mm. feel something is definitely missing. Wow. Um, June fifteenth was Global Wind Day, and Here's a little pop quiz. Um, what document is currently touring Canada? What, what, document? Ancient, what document that's 800 years old is currently touring Canada? Um, 800 years old. Uh, Captain Cook's map. Well, that's close. Actually, King John of England put his seal on the Magna Carta. Oh. Uh, the Magna Carta is traveling around Canada? It's in Canada. It's going to Winnipeg, Toronto, Quebec, uh, and Edmonton, but it's not coming here, unfortunately. Oh. It'll be here from this month to December. We should totally do a show just explaining the Magna it, it's Carta. It's the original one. It's not oh, copies. Wow. It's the first time that it's left England. And it, it's it's be here. It's going to the libraries, and there's uh, wow. pictures on the web of people, you know, looking into the library and actually being able to get that close wow. to it. Wow, that big would be deal. fantastic! Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a big, actually, big deal. So, but it'll it'll be here through December. So, if you're making any trips east, if you can time them, uh, you know, to be able to see it, that's a great historical event. In 1752. Benjamin Franklin experimented by flying a kite during the thunderstorm. We all remember seeing him and probably one of my favorite Americans. Yeah, exactly. Well, he was a pretty, pretty interesting character. Um, he also moved to France because he thought most American women were too prudish. Yeah, and then he came back and had uh, I don't know how many children did he have? A bunch. He had a ten. huge family. Yeah, he had a had a huge family. Yeah, he was a he was a remarkable man mm -hmm. between inventing oh. things and printing and being in the government. He was a pretty much a Renaissance man. He also thought the uh, bird, the national bird for America, should have been a turkey. <laughs> Some years it should have been. <laughs> we should. <laughs> I won't go any further. Than that. Uh, 1916, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson signed a bill incorporating the Boy Scouts of America. Right. I don't know how that goes with the Boy Scouts here. Whether there was a same year, I should have looked it up because I don't know whether that coordinates. No, I think we're more likely associated directly with Lord Baden-Powell. Yeah, yeah. Baden-Powell. Um, in 2012, Nick Walenda became the first person to successfully tightrope walk over Niagara Falls. That was a big deal. Um, June 16th was Youth Day in South Africa, and it was also uh, 1903 that Ford Motors and Pepsi-Cola started. So two two big brands started in the same year. Um, 1936, Bob Brown, an electrical engineer from Quebec, 
brought in a gusher at Turner Valley, uh, royalties number one well, turning the valley into a major oil field overnight. And by 1939, the field had 70 wells, producing an annual revenue of $10 million. And, of course, that was the beginning of Alberta's oil boom in Turner Valley, Alberta. Mm-hmm. June 19th, I love this day, is World Sauntering Day. Oh, <laughs> and it was, I love that. Yeah, it was That's created today. by uh, a gentleman in response to the growing popularity of jogging. He wanted people to slow down <laughs> and appreciate it. Um, the interesting thing about June 19th, is that it is a holiday only in the States called Juneteenth. It, Kevin, have you heard I, of Juneteenth? I, I read that on uh, on a post on Facebook, but I had no idea what they were talking about. Juneteenth, um, when the Civil War was over in 1962, since they didn't have Facebook and they didn't have the Telegraph. What? No Facebook in 1962? No fa- I know, hard to believe. But the the way people found out about it was if they had the mail or if they had newspapers, they found out. But Texas was isolated from Virginia and from the east, and it took um, almost two years for the Union soldiers to make their way to Texas to notify the slaves that they were free. And they never knew about it. They still were, there still was slavery from 1962 to uh, 1860 to 1865. And so you can imagine when the Union soldiers finally got there and said, guess what? You're free men. You can leave. And it caused quite a bit of chaos and they didn't know what to do. But that day is commemorated. Only in Texas is it a state holiday. Did they saunter away? They saunter away (laughs) and have all kinds kinds of great holidays. They don't close the the schools or or the post office, but it is a a big thing. And they spell it Juneteenth, J-U-N-T-E-E-N-T-H. They keep the E out of it, so it's Juneteenth. Mm. All, All one word. Okay. Uh, the reason I mention that is because the same day in 1964, the Civil Rights Act went through. So it survived an 83-day filibuster, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that it happened at the same time as the, the liberation of the slaves. I wonder if Texas. it would survive today if it had to be re-voted on today. There you go. Okay, uh, June 21st was is World Yoga Day, and as we all know, the Burrard Bridge almost was closed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but thank Goodness, our yeah. premier, you know, had a change of heart. Um, it's also National Aboriginal Day and, believe it or not, World Humanist Day. Have you oh. ever heard of World Humanist no, Day? No, no. Kara, everything? That, no, I haven't either. No. It's a humanist holiday celebrated annually around the world on June solstice, which usually falls on mm. June 21st. And according to the International Humanist and Ethical Union, the day is a way of spreading awareness of humanism as a philosophical life stance and means to affect change in the world. And it's also seen as a time for humanists to gather socially and promote the positive values of humanism. So we're missing a beer and a good pub someplace. I like it already. Yeah, absolutely. We ought to start that as a tradition in the Fraser Valley every June 21st. Mm -hmm. Totally should. Yeah. And, of course, the 21st is Father's Father's Day, Day. uh, which started in 1910 in Spokane, Washington, as a neighbor. Uh, It's a YMCA by a young lady named Sonora Smart Dodd. And her father, William Jackson Smart, was a single parent who raised six children. And uh, Miss Dodd wanted to honor him the same way that mothers were honored. And uh, so she did. 
so. Here's to all of the fathers, and here's to all of the humanists, and I guess we can include everybody else. Let's just say today's a day, everybody day. <laughs> and that, dear listeners, on a high note, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre sports events and people <laughs> that make up this day in history. Thank you, Nancy. As I, just, I want to say something because you're talking about um, the, you know, the Red Scare and and how that the and God we trust got put on their money and everything because of communist scare and. I found out today that there's this person, his name is Eugene Debs, and he was a lab, uh, labor union leader in the from like the 19-teens to the 30s, and he ran for president a few times, and at one point he got 6% of the popular vote, and he was a communist. Like, he wasn't scared of saying that. He was a communist. And that really surprised me that, that someone who is a very openly socialist would get 6% of the popular vote, but he did. Okay, so that was during the time of union organizing, yes. and the socialists and the communists um, starting you know, from uh, from Chicago, and when we were talking about you know, International Labor Day and things like that, it, it, it was um, the day of revolting and you know, trying to get standing and trying to get decent hours and salaries, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so um, the people like Eugene Debs were very popular. Hmm. Until of course things totally changed after yeah, World much War later. II, and and, yeah. and Eugene McCarthy, you know, uh, from Wisconsin, scared everybody into thinking they were the demons and the Satanists of the world. Every bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be right back right after this. Interested in a particular topic? You ever wonder where we find all this information? The Common Sense Canadian is a forum for critical discussion of the key issues shaping our world today. Water, energy, food security, and how we manage our resources to the public benefit while preserving our environment. So go to commonsensecanadian.ca. It's uncommonly sensible. All right, we're back. Well, we're talking about Site C today. It's been in the news for a while. Later on, we got an interview with Damien Gillis, our friend from the Common Sense Canadian, which we just heard there. Uh, he's got a lot to say about that. And he's also given us a bit of a, a little update on the liquid natural gas thing. But, uh, Karen, you did a little bit of research on Site C. Yes. Uh, you want to enlighten us or people that might not know much about it? Well, Site C is a dam, hydroelectric dam. Oh, um, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, in the 1950s, the government proposed four dams, uh, Site A, Site B, Site C, and Site D. And um, Site A, the dam was built, and then they built Site B dam, which became the uh, uh, WAC Bennett Dam. I've been there. It's pretty massive. It was a very big project in its time. And these dams are still functional and provide electricity for us today. Um, but at that time, when they were completed, there was not a need for more electricity. So the, the other two sites were shelved. And uh, and in the 80s, a couple of times, there was kind of revived that maybe they should build the Site C Dam. And they, the government always decided that there was no need for that energy and that we were doing fine without it. So um, that 
it never happened, and the, and the site D was scrapped entirely. Like they just weren't even interested in building that. And then in I think it was 1991. Um, no, it wasn't. 2000. I can't remember the date. Never mind. Some date <laughs> recently. <laughs> Somewhere in history. Um, it was under Gordon Campbell actually. Uh, they, the government decided, yeah, we need this power and. Site C was immediately rejuvenated and fast-tracked, and um, there's been a lot of opposition to it from environmentalists because it it, it damages or well destroys some some quite rare ecosystems, of course, by native groups because it's a traditional territory, and also by a lot of farmers because it will cover I can't remember the exact number, but something like six thousand hectares of prime farmland. Yeah, lots and lots of land. And in this this like right now at this time we are seeing more and more the effects of you know, droughts in California, the difficulty of food security, and this is prime farmland. It's it's far north in BC. It's in the Peace River Valley. I don't know if people know where that is, but anyway, it's beautiful farmland and despite the fact that it has a short growing season, it's very, very good agricultural land. And um it's going to be completely eradicated by yeah. this dam. So uh, a lot of farmers oppose it as well. There's, and there's a lot of things I find very wrong with that project to begin with. Um, well, first of all, like like you said, it's it's old thinking. So, yeah, this was proposed in the 1950s. Yeah. We're now in 2015. Like, surely in in this last half of a century, we've surely come we have up a better with idea. better yeah. ideas. Exactly. But the BC Hydro website actually says, no, this is still the cleanest and best option for energy that we have. Yeah, and, and at first glance, it sounds like a great idea to have a dam, right? I mean, it's not coal, it's not, you know, uh, natural gas or oil or anything like that. Uh, but what people don't realize is when you have a dam like that, um, the water becomes stagnant. And everything that's behind the dam um, decomposes and releases a lot of methane. Well, it depends on how the dam is operated, but... Um Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but what you, you you know it's not it's running it water. Destroys, it destroys the ecosystem. Yeah. it's not going to be the same afterwards. But it's also not running water, right? Even if you even if you run full tilt, you know it's still a dam. It holds the water back. There is there is water seeping through, obviously, to go through the turbines. But it's not like it was a fast, free flowing river. It's also going to be moderated, controlled, right? So if they need more electricity that or whatever, the the flow is controlled at, at the dam. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if you're looking for, you know, fish species or anything like that, it's not going to be the same environment that they were that yeah. they've adapted to. Well, it is it is cleaner than, like I said, you know, diesel or natural gas or something like that. But it's still not as good as we can go. And you know, with the technology that we have now, with the solar, wind, even geothermal, uh, which is the one thing that nobody looks at here in BC, and it's surprising because there's a huge potential of geothermal power right here in BC. We're on the Pacific Ring of Fire, right? Mm-hmm. Huge potential, and it's not exploited at all. So, interesting. It's also interesting why uh, it's. I know that you know there's more demand for electricity, but it's a very sudden push, as it were, which you know coincident- coincidentally is the same time that liquid natural gas is mm-hmm. being pushed. Yeah, that's exactly for BC. that, right? <laughs> yeah, because the liquid natural gas requires a tremendous amount of energy to liquefy the natural gas, mm-hmm. so that's exactly why. And it also has that vibe of, you know, that that vibe of nostalgia, you know, the good old days where everybody grabbed their bucket and everybody grabbed their shovel and let's go build something tremendous like the Hoover Dam or something like that, and, you know. It's like, no... We should be past something like that now, by now. 
Well, we certainly need, we still need jobs, and, and that's, you know, the people who support it, that's exactly their their line, right? It's going to be a, a big project. It's going to take several years to complete. It's going to cost billions of dollars. You know, this is going to be good. This is going to be a, a, a secure work site for people for years. And that may be true, but that would also be true of building wind turbines or building any other more green energy mm. source. Yeah. So. Well, should I play the Damien Gillis uh, interview now? I also had like a brilliant moment, but I mean, it's kind of cutting it in half. You think we should play it now, or should yeah, we just... Yeah, yeah, no, you should definitely do the Damien Okay, Damien perfect. So we'll play the Damien uh, Gillis interview, and we'll be back to conclude the show right after this. All right, well, my guest today is a board member of uh, both the BC Environmental Network and the Hague Brown Institute. He is the editor of the Common Sense Canadian, a filmmaker extraordinaire, returned to us with great information again, is our friend Damien Gillis. Hi, Damien. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great, I'm doing great. They love you out here. <laughs> well, they love your audience, so tell them thank you. <laughs> Damien, last time you, we did this uh, really, really great show on LNG, uh, liquid natural gas, and uh, before we go on to Site C today, uh, you told me you got a bit of an update. Well, there's been a couple of fairly big developments on the LNG front, or, or maybe they're actually not that big, uh, as they're, as big as they're being uh, described by our premier, but there was a big uh, press conference yesterday, and I'm speaking about uh, Wednesday of this week, uh, basically about the Petronas, which is the Malaysian government-owned uh, energy giant that's one of the many players who's uh, proposed an LNG plant and a related pipeline uh, in northern BC. And this has been, they've been hanging around for a long time, uh, and there's been lots of promises made, uh, but very little uh, meat on the bones. And yesterday was a repeat of that. This company, in light of slumping uh, oil and LNG prices and the business case for the whole industry falling apart in the last uh, number of months, they once again pushed forward their uh, final investment decision, which is where they actually uh, put their money where their mouth is, to some time this year, we don't know when, and you would have thought with yesterday's fanfare that it would have been an announcement that that was actually going ahead and they were making that final investment decision. But no, all it was was a memorandum of understanding between the company and the government and uh, some vague promise of, a, of the path to uh, final investment decision, which we've heard many times before. What was notable in this announcement is that the Premier essentially boasted that in this memorandum of understanding uh, that this would lock in low royalty and tax regimes, I should say pitifully low royalty and tax rates for the public for years to come. And this is not good news for British Columbians. This is just an affirmation that there is really no benefit at all financially from this industry. We've heard, uh, while there's been big job promises made to British Columbians to justify this industry, at the same time, our Minister of Natural Gas and Christy Clark have made uh, agreements behind closed doors with the likes of India, China, and Malaysia to to supply the workforce uh, for this industry, to build this industry through foreign temporary workers from those countries. Uh, so all the promises that are being made there are really uh, undermined by what they've done behind our backs. 
on the job front. And now there's almost going to be no money coming to the public coffers from this industry, and that's guaranteed by this memorandum from yesterday. We've seen the tax regime, the export regime, uh, the rate cut in half already. Uh, it's pegged to uh, only to profits. These companies are very good, and Petronas and the and the Indonesian billionaire that's uh, behind the big proposal for How Sound Wood Fiber LNG. Both well known for tax evasion and even tax fraud in the case of the latter, uh, and very uh, good at avoiding paying uh, governments on and, and declare you know not declaring the profit. So, th- so that's part of the regime. Uh, they're also allowed to deduct their massive capital capital costs, which can be in the tens of billions of dollars for the pipelines and the uh, the LNG plants. Uh, from any taxes that they would pay. So we can expect to see absolutely nothing from this industry. That's what's being guaranteed by yesterday's announcement. Uh, And I think that it's not a coincidence at all that it comes about a week after a major public humiliation for the government and Patronus when the Alaska Lambs Indian Band, which uh, sits uh, Mm -hmm. on whose territory the LNG plant would sit in the Skeena estuary, rejected a $1.15 billion economic benefit offer uh, for going along with this project because of their concerns of the impacts of the project on their wild salmon in the Skeena River. Uh, Independent biologists have told us that this project could devastate local salmon populations. And they essentially said, look, uh, there's more to life than money. And our salmon is just that. It's the most important thing that we have, and we're not going to sign that away for any amount of money. Uh, It was an unprecedentedly large uh, offer that they received, along with $100 million worth of crown land, and they turned that down after three separate votes where their members uh, voted no. So I think what the reason that Christy Clark and Patronus came out with much fanfare yesterday and made this announcement is really to reassure investors in the aftermath of this disaster with the First Nations. And it runs contrary to the story that they've been telling all along that, you know, unlike the Enbridge pipeline, which First Nations are clearly opposed to right across the board, uh, they're somehow magically in favor of LNG, and that's clearly not panning out uh, to be the case. And the government is sweating. Yeah, so it sounds to me from the, the layman version, it sounds like uh, Patronus is getting cold feet. And the government is basically rolling over to try to ensure that they stay so they can fulfill their electoral promises and get reelected, essentially. Yeah, I think that's very uh, apt analysis. We have essentially given everything away now. And I attended the LNG conference that uh, your listeners and myself and yourself as taxpayers funded last year. Big glitzy show that uh, Christy Clark put on to welcome some of the world's energy leaders. And one of those people is uh, Shamsul Abbas, who's the CEO of Petronas, one of the largest energy companies in the world. And and he came there here to the convention center in Vancouver to wag his finger at British Columbians and lecture us about how if we don't slash our environmental regulations, let them just roll right through with this project uh, and cut back our royalties and taxes to next to nothing, then they would just take their ball and go home. To which I said in my head, uh, then go home. 
uh, <laughs> totally. if those are the only terms under which this industry is going to happen here, then forget about it. You basically said, it'd be like me coming to you and saying, Kevin, I'm going to offer you, uh, make you an offer on your house, and I and I give you an offer that's 50% of market value, uh, and, and then I tell you, and if you don't take this offer, then I'm just going to take it off the table and I'm going to go and buy a different house. And you know exactly what, where you would tell me to go if I did that. And that's the mindset that we need to get into as the rightful uh, owners of this resource. We are shareholders in these uh, subsurface minerals and gas and whatever it may be that's a provincial crown asset. It belongs to the public and to the First Nation to either have treaties or or unceded title and rights in these lands, uh, we need to always be thinking about it like that. And when we're being suckered into these kinds of deals and held hostage and and um, and bullied and, uh, and 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 threatened like uh, the heads of these big companies, like Mr. Abbas, have done, uh, we need to tell them where to go, and we need to tell this government where to go because it's not going to benefit us. Here, here. Well, thank you so much for the update. But today we're talking about Site C, another topic that you've been researching and uh, taking a close look at. Um, for the layperson, Site C, they'll say, well, it's a dam. But uh, what do you, what would you say Site C is for you? I mean, how would you describe it? It's much more than just a dam. Site C is the obliteration of 30,000 acres of some of the very best farmland we have left in Canada. It is on the surface, $12 billion in the long run with financing costs, $25 billion of your listeners' tax dollars. It is massive power bill increases into the indefinite future that's going to be borne out by your listeners' children and grandchildren. Uh, it is an affront to First Nations and their treaty rights. It is an affront to the landowners and farmers in that valley much like my own family, which lost its beautiful ranch called Gold Bar at 20 Mile to the first big dam up there, the Bennett Dam, years ago, before I was born in 1968. And it's just a boneheaded, antiquated idea uh, whose time has long since passed. We have many better alternatives for producing energy today, including geothermal, solar, wind, uh, that have not been explored. The joint review panel that looked into this project in great detail uh, acknowledged that the need for the project had not been demonstrated, that the cost had not been nailed down, that the business case was sh on very shaky ground. So there's really nothing in this project that has any real reason for uh, BC taxpayers and, and power users uh, or any benefit to the public, but it carries enormous consequences to a wide range of very important values. So so for them to, well, first of all, I find it interesting that they're pushing this because it's almost like a return to the old days of, you know, when the sure. everything was raw, raw, you know, build the big dams like the Hoover Dam and all that stuff. It seems like they, the, the, there's a bit of nostalgia there. But uh, does the province actually need the potential energy of something like Site C? No, we don't. And I say that based on intimate knowledge of the last several decades of actual power use data in BC and very solid projections that come from independent economists who actually know what they're talking about. So uh, the fact of the matter is 
Uh, we are doing a very good job at energy, particularly electrical conservation in BC. We're using no more power today, essentially, than we were a decade ago, even though our population has grown since then. Uh, and we are a net exporter of power today, and we will be well into the foreseeable future. And uh, this project is going to take, it, it'll be close to a decade before it actually comes online if we go ahead and start putting shovels in the ground this summer, uh, which is the government's intention, despite seven different major court cases that are pending and are in pro progress right now. And if they decide to do that, then they will be flo flouting the will of the court or the judicial process here in an absolutely egregious way. So um, the reality is, no, this power is not for you and me and our homes and businesses. Uh, that's the government has long since abandoned that argument. They know this, and when they first started promoting the dam three, four years ago, they were talking in terms of it could provide enough power for 400,000 or 450,000 homes. They don't use that example uh, or that uh, reference anymore uh, because they know that it's not true and the data doesn't support that. What they next argued was that this was designed and needed to power the massive energy requirements of the proposed LNG industry. It takes enormous amounts of energy to cool this gas into liquid and put it on tankers and take it to new markets in Asia. So what the, these companies now intend to do, and we gutted our uh, clean uh, energy laws, our climate laws in BC, to enable new gas-fired plants so they can kind of cannibalize some of their gas to create the electricity through cogen plants, uh, create electricity out of gas, in order to cool the, the gas, which which would be cheaper to them than the power they'd be buying from Site C. So that argument has really also kind of gone out the window, especially as we see not a, three years in, not a single one of these LNG plants is even close to being built. So that logic is really flawed. We also heard at the joint review panel bizarre uh, suggestions from BC Hydro that we would this would free up extra power to export to California. The problem with that is that the export price for the last decade across the border has averaged around 30, 35 bucks a megawatt hour. This power we know will cost us in upwards of 110, maybe $120 a megawatt hour. Wow. So you can see, any idiot can see that that means every watt of power you produce is going to come at a loss. Dan Potts, the former head of the major power users of BC, this is representing pulp mills and sawmills and major mines and such that, that uh, at one point represent about a third of all the power consumption in BC. He's a very knowledgeable man about energy policy. And he's predicted a $350 million a year loss to taxpayers. So you got the $25 billion bucks that it's going to cost to build the thing and finance it and maintain it over the next 30, 40 years. But add on top of that a $350 million loss in perpetuity because we're going to have excess power that we're going to have to dump on the market at a loss. So when you count, this project has the potential to, I mean, it's comparable uh, or to a significant portion of our entire provincial debt, which is about 70 billion bucks today. So you take that 25 billion and then you, you know, you run that forward 30 years in the future and you've got another $10 billion in losses on this thing. And you're talking about half our entire provincial debt today. From a, from a dam that we don't need. And is it for 
for our benefit. It's, this is the biggest bonehead idea. It's the most expensive capital project in Canadian history. It's by far the biggest thing we've ever taken on in BC in, in the modern era. And this is a government that, despite all its boasts about being the steady hand at the wheel fiscally, et cetera, is, has a terrible track record, far worse than the NDP ever uh, demonstrated in the 90s in their fast ferry fiasco. These guys, if you look at uh, major capital projects from the Northwest Transmission Line, which is three times over budget almost, uh, the stadium roof was five times the original stated budget. The convention center in Vancouver was double the initial budget. The Portman Bridge and Highway Twinning ended up being about over 500, 550% of the initial numbers that they had thrown out when they got people interested in the project. This government can't manage its way out of a wet paper bag. And now we're going to trust them with it with a $9 billion project on paper, I'm already calling it 12 because the average cost overrun of dams around the world, according to the World Bank, is 27%. And these guys are at the very bottom of the barrel in terms of fiscal management. So you've got to think this is going to go way worse than that. Yeah, so so, so to say nine, you're kind of dreaming in color there. Yeah, nine is like... they. It's already, you know, it went up from seven to eight to then yeah. the week before they issued the environmental approvals for the project, it went up another billion. I mean, you know, a billion, as, as Senator, U.S. Senator Everett Dirksen once said famously, a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon you're talking real money. And <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that really summarizes this bunch of clowns in Victoria, I'll tell you that. And, and you know, just, it, it's, you know, just talking about it makes me think. Like I'm a I'm a common sense Canadian. I come from a long line of business people in this province who worked in all the major resource sectors and helped build this, you know, industrial economy in BC. And so I know what I'm talking about from that perspective. And uh, it just when I see the kind of attitude towards money and project management, and things that these guys bring into place, and then to hear them chastise their political opponents is knowing nothing. You've got a guy whose background is being a police officer as our natural gas minister cutting deals in closed-door meetings behind our backs with major global multinational energy players um, giving away our taxes and royalties. Like, what do these people know about anything when it comes to managing these kinds of projects? Nothing. And, And yet... The, the irony is that they present themselves as being, uh, you know, all-knowing. And, and, and they're the best uh, option that we have for, for managing our economy. It's laughable. <laughs> Indeed. Also, besides being a fiscal fiasco, obviously, um, how much environmental damage would Side C create? I mean, there, a lot of people say, well, it's green energy. But is it really? No, no, no. No, hydro dams are absolutely not clean or green in any shape or form. Uh, you look at what the Williston has done to that land. We're talking massively elevated mercury levels in the fish up there to this day. The First Nations have been lied to about this. They brought out a new study recently. Uh, now Hydro says they're going to look at it again because they've been caught red-handed. They have been lying to these people and letting them eat mercury-contaminated fish on levels that are astronomically above the safe uh, guidelines for from Health Canada. Now, that's a legacy of 50 years after that dam was built. More than that. Um, 
you'd see massive sloughing and erosion of the land all around. And the corridors of the Peace Valley where the site C Dam would be is much worse in that regard, much more silt and clay and shale based than uh, some of the bedrock that you'll find in the Peace Canyon Dam region and, and the Wilson. So whatever sloughing and erosion we've seen in those places can be much worse uh, in, the, in the stretch where they want to build Site C. Uh, dams also, stagnant water creates uh, biomass that then leaches uh, methane, which is a, a absolutely astronomically worse greenhouse gas than, than CO2. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, it's actually, there are new, the new studies now are suggesting that not only, and we know about the ecological consequences of dams on fish and wildlife corridors and, and uh, toxins and contaminants uh, uh, that come leach up from the soil and the tree stumps and everything into the water column and in, then into the bioaccumulating the fish, et cetera, and people that eat them. We've known about these things for a long time. Uh, we know that we're destroying some of the best farmland that we have left in Canada. When we, we, we don't even produce half the food we eat in BC, not even close. California, which exports just about as much food as we produce here in BC for our consumption. Uh, we depend on imports from California and they're in massive drought conditions right now. So we know the food food is gonna get harder to get from there to depend on that. It's a food security issue. Uh, it's a cost issue. It's gonna hit British Columbians in the pocketbook. We know from Vance City Credit Union, did a study last year on basis of this California drought. We expect to see 30 to 40 percent food price increases on produce in BC supermarkets as a result of that. So we know about the farmland issues. They're huge and they're awful. And I'd, I'd like to go back to that a bit because some of your listeners won't believe me when I say that this is great farmland. And, and I absolutely will explain based on the best expertise available. But the, also. You know, you set all that aside and say, yeah, but climate change and carbon emissions and we've got to have zero emission energy. Well, guess what? You're not getting that from big dams. And the reason being methane on a 20 year time scale, according to um, leading climate scientists like Robert Howarth at Cornell University I interviewed recently, methane is 86 times more potent of a greenhouse gas over a 20 year scale than CO2. So when you get large amounts of biomass decaying in a big uh, pond, essentially, which is what a reservoir like that is, it's, a, it's dead, stagnant water. It's no longer a river or a lake. And when people call it Williston Lake, the big reservoir up there, that's that's a misnomer. That's that's a lie. It is no longer a living, breathing entity or ecosystem. It's a reservoir. It's a man-made mechanical contraption where the water doesn't flow naturally. And so you get this large accumulation of, of decaying biomass that then turns into methane gas. There are a number of studies that have come out in recent years that suggest that the greenhouse gases from large-scale hydro dams are just as bad as coal or other fossil fuels. So this whole idea that it's somehow a zero emission operation is, is nonsense based on, on the new science. And we need to get rid of that kind of thinking. And in here in Canada, we're, we're still talking about building these dinosaurs, while in the States, uh, they're starting to decommission them and bring back those fish runs. And we've seen this in Washington State with the Columbia Basin. We've seen it. Uh, there was a great film that came out, documentary last year, called Damnation, that explored this and the history of dams 
and all the ecological devastation and issues they brought throughout the United States, killing off fish runs and all these things, and how they've now come to realize this and rethink that energy and look to other more sustainable alternatives. And so they're actually taking old dams down to try to rehabilitate those watercourses and ecosystems. But we are stuck in the past here. We, our big ideas today, literally, the two biggest ideas, and we're talking about them here tonight, of this liberal government for our economy and our future are a 50-year-old style hydro dam and a fossil fuel industry. Wow. And the rest of the world, including our southern neighbors, the United States, including China, Germany, Denmark, Brazil, all our other G8 nations, we're the last. We're the last place when it comes to renewable energy development, investment in clean tech. And, you know, the technology is there. The cost comparison is getting more and more favorable every year. Uh, it's it's now in situations where, uh, certain situations where solar is, is beating coal on a cost comparison basis. We have tremendous geothermal potential here in BC. People will ridicule these solutions I mentioned. I never said you can only rely on solar or only on wind. You need to build an integrated grid where, well, one is working, the other isn't, and they spell each other off uh, and battery systems and such so that you can kind of build an integrated uh, sustainable energy system. But geothermal is baseload. It's like a dam. You can, you know, it's always there. You can draw on it whenever you want. And it's relatively clean and we now know from the Canadian Geothermal Association that we have enough a geothermal potential in BC to, to power the entire province. But BC Hydro's never even looked at that. Uh, that was another thing that the uh, review panel into Site C found fault in is that they just haven't explored any alternatives. This project has been on the books since the late 1970s. It's part of a dam legacy that started in the 60s with when my family's land was flooded. And we haven't changed our thinking in all that time. And the technology in all of these other countries I'm talking about, they're reaping enormous benefits, not just environmentally, but the next, the biggest growth sector in terms of job creation and economic opportunities in the world today is clean tech and green jobs, renewable energy. And everybody's doing it, except for us. And I don't just mean provincially here with the Clark government, but the Harper government, of course, is the greatest culprit of all. And together, uh, they're ensuring that we stay stuck in this Stone Age. You can't handle the truth. (laughs) Indeed. So uh, (laughs) you were talking about the First Nations. Uh, How how did the First Nations react to Site C? They seem to be like they've become the consciousness of, of. of the province, how are they reacting to the whole site C thing? Well, they hate it, and uh, they're fighting it in court on the basis of their uh, their treaty rights uh, being violated. And uh, there are seven different cases currently before the courts, both provincial and federal. Uh, five of them are being led by First Nations. So two, one in provincial court, one in federal court, are being led by the farmers of the region, the Landowners Association. The other... Five cases uh, are being led by First Nations, and four of them involve Site C Dam specifically. Uh, the other one is a larger by the Blueberry River First Nation, is a broader lawsuit challenging 
the government over the breaking of the treaty promises that we made back in 1899 to those First Nations of Northern BC, Northern Alberta. What that deal said and what Queen Victoria promised them is that, yes, you know, enabled the crown to take some land from time to time for settlement and development, but it guaranteed those First Nations under seal of the crown that they would be able to continue practicing their traditions and rights on the land unimpeded as if the treaty had never been signed. And that's hunting, trapping, fishing. And with all these waves of development from oil and gas and logging and mining and two previous dams and now this dam on the horizon, uh, that land has been so segmented. The caribou populations have been decimated down to almost nothing. I mean, it's really tragic. They've actually, some of the herds have been totally extirpated. You've got, um, you know, the moose are now in trouble. They can't eat the fish because of the mercury contamination. It's really a travesty. And you know what? This is a promise. A deal's a deal. And we have not lived up to it. It's the colonial governments over the years that are heirs to the promises made by the Crown have not lived up to these promises. And Site C is just the last big blow, slap in the face, nail in the coffin, if you will. And they're fighting it. They're finally digging in their heels here in a big way. And they've got some pretty strong cases before the courts, particularly the last one I'm talking about, which would threaten everything that this government, every idea that this government has ever had, including shale gas and LNG and Site C Dam and big mines and other uh, projects that they have on the go because they all fall within that Treaty 8 territory. And in this case, would put that all up in the air. So, you know, they're... They're going to the wall on this. They're raising money right now for they're just starting to raise up a big legal war chest for their cases. They were in court. The Treaty 8 BC First Nations, four of them, uh, were in court a couple of weeks ago over their federal case against Site C. The Crown and the pro- with the backing of the province tried to strike the key aspects of this uh, motion for judicial review. Basically, everything that referred to their rights, their treaty rights, and them being broken by Site C Dam and not being listened to by the government throughout this whole process, they tried to gut that out of an upcoming judicial review that's happening in July, and they failed. The judge turned them down and said, you know what, this deserves a full and proper hearing at a judicial review, and I'm not going to touch this thing, and moreover, I'm going to award costs against you to the First Nations, which was a further slap on the wrist to them. So... So far, so good. Through the courts, things are proceeding, and the government maintains that it is going to get shovels in the ground this summer, and that's going to be really interesting to watch because I don't think that the courts will reflect very well on having um, their judicial process floated like that by the government. If they you know, are prepared to, to go ahead and bulldoze ahead this summer and waste, mind you, your and my tax dollars on work that may come to no fruition in the end. You know, any money that they spend at this point could be completely wasted if this project gets scuttled as it should. Uh, so they really should be showing a lot more discretion right now, but of course that's not the way this government works. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here, but I'm sure that even beyond the court cases, uh, these First Nations are ready to go to the wall to protect what's left of their land up there. Well, I guess you sort of 
answering my my next question, I guess you know you got many projects that are approved by government, but they never really move forward. Uh, mm. Your prediction? You think Site C is going to die on the papers? You think it's going to die on the floor there, or you think they're not going to die without a long protracted fight? But I I think that the the chances there's too many things against it. It's too long, too unwieldy, too expensive, too many core challenges, too many legal problems, too many groups that are against it. Um, it's too stupid of an idea. It's just that stupid of an idea uh, that I don't think it's going to go ahead. But I, don't, I, I say that advisedly and, and knowing that it's not going to be easy to stop it. You know, you've got a government here that really has run out of ideas, and the ones that they have left are the dumbest ones of all. But they're going to cling to them uh, with every you know scrap of, of uh, energy that they have, and they're not going to go down without a fight. But neither are the farmers or the First Nations. And I think as the public in down here in Vancouver, and in the Fraser Valley, and the island, et cetera, and the Kootenays, and you know the Okanagan, realize how much this is going to hurt them in the pocketbook, and how much is this going to deprive their children and future generations of, of quality farmland and food security, that's that's what needs to happen. And that's what's going to really put the final nail in the coffin for this project. Is And, and what these court cases do more than anything is present, is they potentially slow this project down and it enables the rest of the province and the public to catch up to the realities of what are going on here. And that's that's what I hope will happen. And I'm I, I'm still very optimistic that this thing can be stopped. They've tried three times in the past, it's failed every time. It's been on the books for 35 years. There's got to be something wrong with this thing. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks, Damien. I appreciate that. You, you, you once again enlighten us with your, your knowledge. You're a fountain of knowledge. Now, here's a chance. The mic is all yours, my friend. Plug yourself. Go right ahead. Be shameless. Well, yeah. I just encourage your listeners if they want to stay on. If your listeners want to stay on top of these issues on a daily basis, they can go to commonsensecanadian.ca and check us out on Facebook as well at uh, Common Sense Canadian. And we're working away to keep you informed and, and let you know how you can get involved with these things. Yeah, fantastic site. Make a donation too. Well, please do. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Well, thank you, Damien. Until next time. Okay. Bye. Thank you. That was Damien Gillis. Great guy. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Uh, sorry, cut that <laughs> brief. Uh, I really like he's uh, so well-informed, and he really, really tries to make a difference. And he's putting his money where his mouth is. Very artic- articulate and easy to listen to as so. well. Yeah, so hopefully this gives you guys some uh, food for thought about the Site C Dam and uh, everything that's been uh, going on uh, around that. So, that takes us to the end of our show. Yes, well, it does. <laughs> <laughs> you can always find us at uh, leftatthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, or you can go to Block Talk. If you sign up at Block Talk, they will send you an email whenever the show is about to air to let, us, you, know, let you know that we'll be airing. Coming up soon, down the pipe, um, we have a Sasquatch researcher. They'll be coming onto the show. That'll be interesting to group, well, to question him about what he actually does. Uh, we also have a local politician who is running as an independent. He'll be coming down as well, talk to us. And we have many more things. We have that interview with Lawrence Krauss and with Matt Dillahunty that I want to give you guys, but I'm just working out the 
sound bugs, and hopefully uh, we can uh, play that for you guys soon. Anything you want to add to that? No, thanks for listening. Until next time, guys. Oh.